And I'm one of the pastors here. Our senior pastor, Keith Collins, leads the Southeast region, Sovereign Grace Churches, and he's visiting a church this morning in Melbourne, Florida. So the privilege of preaching to us this morning from the book of Acts. We're continuing our series in the book of Acts this morning. You can turn with me again to Acts chapter 27. Acts chapter 27. We're going to begin here. The title of this message is Christian Influence. If you've been following with us through the book of Acts, you know that in this series, The New Normal, we're seeking to identify just various realities and thematic elements that were normal for the Christians in the book of Acts and seeking to determine how we can apply those to our lives, how they can be normal for our lives today. And so last Sunday, Pastor Peter Helped us look at the topic of God's sovereignty against opposition, how it overcomes opposition. This Sunday, we're going to look at the theme of normal Christian influence from this chapter. So this will be a, a topical message for us this morning. And, and we're going to read all of chapter 27 into the first part of chapter 28. So if you don't have it on, you go put that reading hat on, open your Bible. We're about to read uh, 44 verses in 27 and then through 16 and 28. So following with me. Verse 1. This is after Paul has appealed to King Agrippa to go to Rome and stand before Caesar. He can bring the gospel to Rome. Verse 1. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion, of the Augustan cohort named Julius. Centurion is a man who oversees a hundred other men. Cohort's about 600 people. And embarking in a ship of Adramidium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly, gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus. I don't know if you guys know what a lee is. I had to look that up. Uh, so it's on the other side of the island where the winds do not blow strongly. So putting at the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia. We came to Myra in Lycia. Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Snidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmon. Coasting along with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of, let's see, that sounds like a lovely town to hang out in. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest. And spend the winter there. 
Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along creek close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run along the ground in Syrtis, they lowered the gear and thus were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. When the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea about midnight, the sailors suspected they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found twenty fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found fifteen fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for the day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As the day was about to dawn, Paul urged them to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you, take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Verse 39. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed the bay with the beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the Ship. So it was. So it was that all were brought safely to land. Chapter twenty-eight. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all, because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. 
They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was God. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief men of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It it happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery, and Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. After three months... We set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there, we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up. And on the second day, we came to Pitoli. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. This was God's word to us. Let's pray. Ask for his help. Lord, we do ask for your help this morning. Lord, we are, we are weak. Lord, we need you. Some of us might be in here who are just tired and exhausted, distracted by pain. Maybe some there in here, it's just been a long weekend with the kids. Maybe you walked in after just having a conflict with your spouse. You're thinking about the upcoming week and everything that's happening and all the deadlines that need to be met. Lord, would you help us? We want to hear from you. We want your word to pierce our hearts, Lord. Would you bring about change in our lives? Lord Jesus, would you be magnified in our midst? Thank you for your word. Thank you for these men and women here. Thank you for Lakeview and how you are building us. Or do it even more today. Be more and more glorified today in our lives. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Well, finish this sentence for me. If you're going to talk the talk, you better walk the walk, right? I said that with a little conviction there. Uh, in other words, what, what this means is that you need to act in a way that agrees with the things you say. Now, if you were to walk into my garage, you would probably notice that I have a uh, set of golf clubs. I have a rod and reel in there. I've got a few soccer balls. And I could probably tell you all about those items. I could talk to you about each of those items. I could tell you what they're made of, uh, how to use them. Um, I could throw around some lingo about each of those items. But fact is, it's been a while since I've actually hit a golf ball or kicked a soccer ball or wet a hook, right? So I can, I can talk the talk about those items. But the fact is, I'm not, I'm not really doing it. I'm not really walking the walk. And as Christians, you know, as men and women who have Christ in us, 
and who know the gospel, the same discrepancy can be true about our lives, can it? I mean, we can, we can tell you all about church. that We've been in here in church for a long time. We can talk to you about Christianity. We can talk to you about the gospel. We can tell you how wonderful it is and how much it means to us and how much we love Jesus. And at the same time, say something totally different to an onlooking world with the way that we live our lives. We can talk the Christian talk, but are we really, are we really walking it? Now, before you start thinking of others who need to hear this, some of you are already there, aren't you? Listen, your life, my life, our our lives exert influence. Our lives exert influence. Whether you like it or not, whether others like it or not, your life exerts influence. In other words, it has an effect on the people around you, it has an effect on the world around you. Just like a, a plant yields a fragrance, our lives exert influence. The question is, what kind of influence does your life exert, right? What's it smell like? What's the aroma? Is it Christ-likeness? In other words, does it Does it influence the world for good and bring glory to God? It all depends on this, right? Here's the secret. Are you walking? Are you walking the walk? See, as Christians, listen, God God commands us. He commands us to live in a way that reflects Christ to the world around us, doesn't he? He calls us to influence the world for Christ by walking like Christ. We see this all over the Bible. Look with me in your notes at some verses to make this connection. Matthew 5, 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. 1 Peter 2, 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Philippians 2.15, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. 1 Peter 3.15, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. First John 2, 6, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. The Christian influence, living, living as Christ-like witnesses in a lost and dying world is normal in Scripture and normal in the book of Acts. In fact, over and over in Acts, God's people show, we see them, they show true Christ-like character, both in good times and bad times, in storms and in the calm, in peace and persecution and life and death. Regardless of circumstances, the people of God demonstrate by their actions that Jesus is who he says he is and the gospel is what he says it is. 
It was true of the early Christians, and here in these verses, it's true of the Apostle Paul's life as well. We just read Paul. Paul's doing what? He's on a ship, and he's headed to Rome. He's a prisoner by his own will so that he can appeal before Caesar, and so the gospel can spread to the ends of the earth, thus fulfilling Acts 1.8. Right? You should be on the witnesses from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. We see this being fulfilled, being played out. On this voyage... If you followed along in reading, you'll notice there are ups and downs. I mean, there are good times and bad. There are stories of storms, stories of shipwreck, stories of snakebite. There are stories of survival, stories of solutions to problems, stories of solidarity amongst Christians. This trip to Rome has many ups and downs. And the same is true about your life, isn't it? Some of you are in here and you feel like you're in the midst of an unending storm. Like, well, will it ever go away? Will it ever end? Will the pain ever stop? Will there ever be reconciliation? Will it ever get easier? Will I ever find relief? Will the, will the illness ever go away? For some of you, life might feel shipwrecked. You're despairing of hope. Wondering if you're, you're ever going to stop ruining good things. Or if life is even worth living anymore. If you're ever going to be able to put, put things back together. In life, and where do you even begin to do that? For some, it might be snake bite feel. Just by the way, I, I think this text supports killing snakes. Just going to throw that in there. I'm just kidding. Uh, he threw it in the fire, right? So, um, but some of you feel like shocked and surprised and hurt by something that you just heard about, and man, you never saw it coming. And the pain you're having to now endure won't seem to go away. And some of you might be here this morning and um, for the moment, right? The sea is calm. All is well. Circumstances in life seem to be going well. That's where Paul finds himself. It's ups and downs. But in the midst of this, Wherever you are, the call, the call to influence the world around you for Christ, it does not go away. Because whether your circumstances are good or bad, listen, this world is a, is a sinking ship. Right? Christ, Christ is going to bring a new heaven and new earth when he returns. This world is a sinking ship. And there's only one anchor that is our hope. To rescue us. And that is Christ. And, and we, must, we must hold fast to him. We must, we must point others to him. With our lives. We must bring Christian influence. Maybe you can think of men and women in here. Or in your life. Who have impacted your life greatly. For Christ. Now you know. 
These are not people who have it all together, right? If that were required, none of us could influence the world for Christ around us. Rather, these are people who by the power of the Holy Spirit have said, here I am, God. Use me. Use me however you'd like, regardless of my weaknesses, regardless of difficult circumstances or how hard my life is, regardless of my sinful failures, regardless of others' sins against me. I'm here to to walk the walk. I'm going to live my life in a way that reflects the gospel to others. And, And we need more and more of that kind of influence in our lives and in this world. That's exactly the kind of influence Paul exerts in these verses. This guy's example of Christ like influence is so provoking. And so, how we're going to look at this together. And how we're going to see God in these verses together. We're going, to, we're going to ask this driving question. It seems to be the question that this text is asking us. And it's this. What does it look like to live in a way that reflects the gospel regardless of life's circumstances? What does it look like to live in a way that reflects the gospel regardless of life's circumstances? If we're going to talk the talk, what's it look like to walk the walk? What's it look like to bring Christian influence in the world around us. And we're going to see in this text what that looks like. And the first thing we see about the Apostle Paul's life is that he was consecrated to God. Consecrated to God. Look at verse 23 with me. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship the God to whom I belong and whom I worship for Paul. Paul, this means being fully devoted to God. Paul's entire reference point for who he is and how he lives his life is not himself, we see, but it is God. Paul's life, what this means, it's an altar. It's an altar before God. That's what it means to belong to and worship God. And as a result, don't you see, God uses him to bring significant significant change and influence on the world for Christ. Paul, Paul here in this message, he's taking the gospel to the world's biggest stage and he's going to stand before the world's most powerful ruler. And we're going to see he's going to change the world forever as a result. Consecrated to God, and God is using him in powerful ways. As Francis Schaeffer says, so much can come from little if the little is truly consecrated to God. And this mindset is totally normal for Paul. Right? Romans, Romans 14, 7 through 8. Look at this. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Christian, we are are not our own. But we belong body and soul to God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's the essence of Christian influence. I love how John Calvin elaborates on this truth. Look at your notes with me at the quote there. If we then are not our own but the Lord's, it is clear what error we must flee and whether we must direct all the acts of our life. If we're not our own, 
Let not our reason nor our will, therefore, sway our plans and deeds. We're not our own. Let us, therefore, not set it as our goal to seek what is expedient for us. We are not our own. And so far as we can, let us forget ourselves and all that is ours. Conversely, conversely, we are God's. Let us, therefore, live for him and die for him. We are God's. Let let his wisdom and will, therefore, rule all our actions. We are God's. Let all the parts of our life accordingly strive toward him as our only lawful goal. Oh, how much has that man profited who, having been taught that he's not his own, has taken away dominion and rule from his own reason, that he may yield it to God. For as consulting our self-interest is the pestilence that most effectively leads to our destruction, so the sole haven of salvation is to be wise in nothing and to will nothing through ourselves, but to follow the leading of the Lord alone. If we are to live a life that reflects the gospel to this world, then we must... We must know that we do not belong to ourselves. If you're a Christian, Paul says this about your life in 1 Corinthians 6, 7 through 8. You were not your own, but you were bought. You're bought with a price. You want to make a difference in this world around you. Be consecrated to God. Listen, don't live as if you really belong to yourself. You're like, you're, you're calling the shots. You're calling the shots in your life. If you say stop living with self at the center, that just sounds totally... <laughs> I mean, who's saying that? Stop living with self at the center. The world's not telling us that. The world's actually telling us the opposite. It constantly tells us that we're at the center of the universe. Author David Wells says this, commentator on our culture, today... American culture validates, even celebrates its own self-centeredness. This self-focused, self-preoccupied, self-promoting, self-seeking, and self-serving ethos pervades our workplace, TV, blog sites, social media, and movies. It has become a part of the air that we all breathe. It is so much part of how life is that it almost passes unnoticed. Our culture and the truths of the gospel are ever more sharply contrasted. In the one, we're validated for serving ourselves. And in the other, we surrender all of this to serve Christ. In the one, there are no moral absolutes, but in the other, there are. In the one, we are the center of life, but in the other, our triune God is. In the one, all that we have to think about is getting our stuff now, filling our pockets, buying our toys, going to exotic places, and doing our own thing. In the other, we see beyond this life to a different world. One where what is right and true has triumphed and where there are no longer any tears. Rarely have these two visions of life been more starkly contrasted than they are today. This is a great time for Christian faith. This is a great time for Christian influence. Indeed it is. And we must remember we were bought with a price. So we influence this world. And since, since the price God bought us with, listen, the price God bought us with was what? The sacrifice of his own son. Listen, we don't get to negotiate our lives with God. This is not like an athletic director and head football coach sitting down and working out a deal. 
We bring nothing to the table. God mercifully saved us. Not of anything good in us. We belong to him because of his sheer grace and mercy on our lives. So we don't get to negotiate with God. And listen, there's nothing. You know what this means? This means there's nothing that he cannot ask of us. He, he owns us. We, we belong to him. There's nothing he cannot ask of us. For Paul, God, God could ask him of anything. And he's like, yep. Okay. Let's go. Right? We see that Acts 20, 24. Yeah, I don't count my life of any value nor is precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify of the gospel of grace. I mean, what else can Paul say? He belongs to God. The same is true for those of us who've been mercifully purchased by the blood of Christ on our behalf. All we can say is, I don't, I don't count my life as any value. I don't count my life as any precious to myself. I'm just here to run the race, man. Jesus has given me a race. He's marked it out for me. I'm here to run that race. Belong to God. And testify of his grace. Man, I recently... I uh, was reminded of this in my own life. A few weeks ago, I was approached by a, uh, a gentleman who came to the church, and he appeared lived a pretty rough life, and um, appeared that he didn't have a home as well. And he, he said, hey, uh, I, I want to go to a job interview. Um, it's for a construction job, and I, I just need some, some new clothes to wear. Do, y'all, do you have any clothes I can have? Um, and just as I was about to say, you know, sorry, sir, I don't, we don't have any new clothes to give you. I hear, give him your shirt. And I'm like, nah, this isn't normal, but I mean, I heard it was pretty clear. I'm like, that sounds like the Bible. Um, <laughs> it's like, it's like, give him your shirt. And I'm like, but I, but I like this shirt. <laughs> I mean, it's just kind of a newer shirt, and I, I kind of like it. It's just clear. It's like, it's not yours, it's mine. Give him your shirt. And man, I mean, I'm just being honest with you. I, I wrestled with that. It's just clear. Jason, it doesn't belong to you. You don't belong to yourself. You belong to me. So I had an extra bridge t-shirt I put on it. Gave him my shirt, and the funny thing is, I, and I thought it was a cool shirt, and I gave it to him. He's like, I mean, I guess this will work. And he put it in his bag. <laughs> It was so good for my soul just to be like, yeah, it is just a shirt. My goodness. I mean, take it. It's just, it's not mine. My life's not mine. I mean, that's a small example, right? There are bigger sacrifices God calls us to. And, and frankly, we just, we just don't have the right to negotiate with God on those. Right? We belong. We belong to God. If we're going to reflect the gospel in the world, regardless of circumstances, we must be consecrated to God, number one. Number two, we must be compassionate towards others. Compassionate towards others. If you, if 
you saw in these verses, Paul, and Paul, Paul lives with concern for the suffering and for the misfortunes of others, doesn't he? I mean, just sprinkled throughout this text, very, very moving displays of, of compassion from Paul towards others. It's like he's living his own advice in Galatians 6.10, right? So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. So here's a man who who had every reason to become self-centered in his life. Here's a man who had every reason to become concerned only for himself, to just be focused on how others have hurt him. My goodness, his life has just been one beating after another almost. One slander after another. He's got, he's got every right to just be inward. I'm just going to care about myself from here on out. I try to do good things, but look what happens. But no. In fact, it just seems to make him more and more outward oriented, doesn't it? More and more focused on the concern for others' sufferings and concern for others' misfortunes. In verses 9 and 10, he warns of coming disaster. Look again at those verses with me real quick. Verses 9 and 10. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them saying, sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo in the ship, but also of our lives. Paul's like, guys, if we keep doing what we're doing, it's not going to go well for us. Life will not go well if we, if we do this. Notice Paul, Paul's not disrespectful. Paul's not out to start an argument here. He's genuinely concerned for the welfare of others. He knows this time of year, it's very dangerous weather. It's after the fast. The Mediterranean is volatile. And that's where they are. And he's concerned for their lives. So he, he lovingly steps in. And he strongly urges that disaster be avoided. He's compassionate for their safety. Are, are there people in your life who are headed for disaster? Are there people who are living lives that just says danger ahead? The, the compassionate thing to do, church, is to lovingly help them stop and to warn them of the coming disaster, whether it be a friend in an inappropriate relationship, a loved one that can't stop harming themselves, a coworker talking about the abortion she's going to get, a man downloading inappropriate material, a, a heart that is diminishing in its love for Christ or whatever path they're on leading to disaster. Compassion lovingly warns it respectfully and gently and firmly steps in and says, I care. I care. I'm here. We have to stop. I care enough to tell you that I'm going to do something about it. There are more ways we see Paul acting with compassion towards others. In verses 24 and 25, he tells the despairing and hopeless men, right? These guys, I mean, sun hasn't shone for days, nor stars in the sky. They've just been uh, tossed all over the sea. 
And he tells them about God's grace to them, that God has given him hope that they are not going to perish, right? We see also um, in verses 33 through 44, 34, he takes responsibility for their physical nourishment. In chapter 28, verses 8 through 9, Paul labors to re- relieve sickness and disease, right? Compassion is it's just like it's on full display in Paul's life. In this world, we know, we know, is in utter despair. You're going to see a lot of smiles this time of year. But you know, Christmas is one of the hardest times of the year anybody can go through. Because we're just broken relationally. And there's lots of difficulty. In this world's utter despair, there's, there's absolutely no hope. It's filled with hopeless and suffering men and women who desperately need our compassion our influence for Christ, whether it's by being there for a neighbor who just lost a loved one or pursuing racial reconciliation where there is a divide or ensuring those with less than us have all they need this holiday season or telling a single mother what a great job she's doing and see if there's any way you can bless her family or contributing financially to long-term efforts that seek to relieve suffering or fatherlessness or famine or disease. How about this? Asking people how you can pray for them. Pray for them and then follow up with them. See how they're doing. How you can care for them. Maybe there's someone here God's calling to get meaningfully involved in compassion-related ministries or even, even create your own. Authentic Christian compassion is not itself the gospel. That's not the gospel. But it would be impossible without the gospel and it certainly reflects the gospel to the world around us. And we know I mean, God looked upon our spiritual brokenness and he came to our rescue, even at great cost to himself. And when we walk that way towards others, at great cost to ourselves, we demonstrate the world around us Christ-likeness. And we do this, when we do this, we know that we know that the most compassionate thing is not to relieve their temporary suffering, right? But the most compassionate thing we do is relieve their eternal suffering. Christian compassion does not stop after temporary needs are met. It it seeks to ensure eternal needs are met as well. Right? It's not explicit in this text, but I mean, Paul was proclaiming the gospel on this boat and on the island of Malta. We see in Acts, he's not going anywhere. Paul doesn't go anywhere without testifying to the grace of Jesus Christ. Compassionate towards others. Right? Third point we see. Paul's consecrated to God, compassionate towards others, and number three, courageous for the gospel's advance. For to reflect the gospel to this world, regardless of circumstances, we need courage. We need to be courageous for the gospel's advance. To be courageous for the gospel's advance means to not be deterred by the prospect of danger or discomfort or death for the sake of the gospel spreading to the ends of the earth. Why is Paul going to Rome as a prisoner? Why is he doing this? We read in chapter 26, verse 32, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. They're like, Paul, are you out of your mind? What are you doing? It's like, I want to go before Caesar. 
could have been set free. He's completely innocent of criminal activity in his life. He could have all charges dropped, yet he, he appeals to Caesar, knowing he would probably spend the rest of his days in prison and, and eventually face martyrdom. Why, Paul? You don't have to. Why are you doing this? He's courageous for the gospel's advance to the ends of the earth. But Paul, what if you get hurt, man? What if you get rejected? Paul, what if they don't like you? Paul, what if you get killed? Paul's like, I mean, for me to live as Christ and die is gain. Let's go. Courageous for the gospel's advance. He remembers Jesus' words in Matthew 16, 25, forever who would... For whoever would lose, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So Paul is all in. He knows the plan. He knows that the gospel was to go into all the world. And if Paul could just get to Rome, then the epicenter of the world, he knew the gospel would then advance to the ends of the earth. So he's, he's sold out for the gospel's advance, regardless of risks that such an endeavor brings with it. He knows that risks are involved with this. He knows that every turn of the corner, another blow is coming his way. Rome was not Paul's safe, happy place. Really, nowhere was Paul's safe, happy place. He said in Acts 20, 23, the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city, every city, imprisonment and afflictions await me. But Paul goes anyway. Why? It's courageous for the gospel's Advance, regardless of the risks. And for many of us, for many of us, you know, it takes, doesn't take much courage to sign up to be a Christian here in the West. I mean, many do so here and, and we're just, we're not in danger of signing up to be a Christian. Yet, and that's, we're seeing that's starting to increase. However, to live Christianity out, to really walk the walk That's an entirely different matter. And for that, in today's context, it takes much courage. It's it's costly to truly follow Christ. There's, There's risk everywhere. But this very risk is the means by which the worth of Christ shines more brightly in a world of darkness and decay. By being courageous for the gospel's advance, we show the world Jesus is better than whatever is at risk to be lost for his sake. He's better. We show that by taking great risks with our lives. Where can you personally take risks for the gospel's advance? What sins need to be confronted? What spiritual disciplines need to be strengthened? What ways can you sacrificially serve at church? What can you do to be salt and light in the workplace or your neighborhood? How can you engage the public square for the good of others? How can you bring the gospel of Christ to your neighbor's city and ends of the earth? Right, the, the world needs to see this. I think the world needs to see Christians sacrificially living for the gospel. They need to see children adopted or fostered even when there's already a full house. They need to see families willing to pick up and move anywhere for the sake of the gospel's advance. They need to see jobs forfeited that require integrity to be sacrificed. They need to see costly, sacrificial, financial giving. 
need to see men and women reading and believing and living this book. They need to see involvement in messy relationships that just keep pursuing peace, even when it would be much easier to just let it go. They need someone to tell them to stop eating breadcrumbs and to come to the feast, to stop drinking dirty water and to come to the fountain of living waters where the thirst can finally be quenched. And we see Paul doing that. He's, he's just willing to risk it all so the gospel can go into all the world. Will you, will you do the same? Will you be courageous for the advancement of the gospel? Will you walk the walk regardless of life's circumstances? This world desperately needs it. And it not only needs your courage, not only needs your courage, but it needs to see your confidence that God keeps his promises. It needs to see your confidence in God's promises. God will keep his promises. That's point four in your notes there. If we're to reflect the gospel to the world, we must be consecrated to God, compassionate towards others, courageous for the gospel's advance, and confident that God keeps his promises. Look at verse 25 with me. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I've been told, I'm confident it's going to be exact. No, I know for certain. God told me this. Take heart. It's going to be exactly as God told me. The ship's tackle has been lost. This is right after a huge storm. No sun nor stars had appeared for many days. Paul says these words. It's going to be exactly as God told me. Not a hair of your head. It's going to be lost. You're going to arrive safely. We're going to lose the ship. You're going to arrive safely. God told me. He will keep his promises. Back in chapter 19, look at this. For the first time there, we see Paul believes God's calling him to Rome, right? Back in 19. Then in chapter 23, God appears to him and says, hey, Paul, you got to testify in Rome before Caesar. Then in verse 24 of chapter 27, an angel appears to Paul and says, you must stand before Caesar. No one on this ship will lose their life. Then we read in verse 27, 44, the last verse of chapter 27. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. We see in chapter 28, Paul's bitten by a snake. He doesn't freak out or worry if he's going to die. He just goes and heals people. He knows he's headed to Rome. And in 28.14, we read, And so we came to Rome, just as God promised Paul would. Paul is confident that God keeps his promises. When things look the bleakest, God kept his promises. He's true to his word. He delivered from the storm, from the shipwreck, and from the snake bite. Paul goes to Rome just as God promised. You may say, that's nice, Jason. I mean, if if God stood beside me and told me something, I'd I'd probably believe it too. I'd be pretty confident. If an angel of the Lord appeared to me, yeah, good to go in my storms. I just ride them on through. No big deal, right? But I don't get those kind of promises. Right? We don't, we don't, it's not normal. We don't get those kind of promises. But listen, you get, you get way better promises than that. If you have Christ, you have way better promises than what we see here. Just think of the promises for you in the book of Acts. 
as we've read most of this book together. Acts 2.21. It shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Man, that's a promise right there. That's a good promise. Doesn't matter how bad you are, how many sins you, how far lost you are. Like anybody, doesn't matter what country you're from, anybody, no matter what your past is, anybody who calls on the name of the Lord, saved. Acts 2.36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified, know for certain. Let all the household know for certain. There's a promise. This Jesus whom you crucified, know for certain. He's alive. He's been given the name above every name. One day every knee will bow to him. He is Lord of all. You can bank on that. Jesus is Lord of all. He is ruling this universe right now. He is ruling your life right now. And he's doing it for good. You can bank on that. Acts 10. All who believe in him will receive forgiveness of sins through his name. If you believe in Christ, you are forgiven of all your sins. That's a promise. God has taken care of our biggest problem. And forgiveness of our sins. He's done that. Through not sparing his son. Acts 17.31. Because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. He's fixed the day. Jesus is coming back. Right? We heard that this morning from Pastor Peter. He's coming back. That's a promise. He's raised him from the dead. Acts 24, 14. But this I confess to you that according to the way which they call the sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. Everything in this book you can believe. It's yours. God has given it to you. And that is a promise. Everything written down. Acts 24, 15, having hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the just. Right? You will live again beyond the grave. And if you have Christ, you will reign forever with him. These are your promises. God has given you. They're yours. Can you, can you take God at his word? We don't need an angel to appear to us. We have his word. We have his promises. We see his actions are faithful and just and true. He keeps promises to his people. So we can have confidence of that. Listen, we, ha- we can have confidence, church, because God has sent his son You want to know what you can bank on everything with? It's this. God has sent his son, born of a virgin, right? Born to free the sons of earth, as the Christmas hymn says. Born to give them second birth, just as God promised. Jesus, the son of God and son of man, has come, just as God promised. And he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our sins. By his wounds we've been healed, just as God promised. God keeps his promises. He has risen from the grave in victory, conquering sin, Satan, and death, 
just as God has promised us. And he's coming back to judge the living and the dead just as God has promised us. God keeps his promises. Christ will save his people. Christ will return for his people and we will reign with him forever. That is banked on God's promise to his people. And he calls us to to be confident in that. To walk that out. May we live this confidence out. And that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean just like let go and let God, right? It doesn't mean that. Right? We see on the ship, after Paul tells the guys, hey, you're not going to die. This is after the fast. They haven't eaten in a few days. Paul's like, eat. But Paul, you said we're not going to eat. Eat some food. God's going to use that to keep you alive. Right, we saw last week the example in Nehemiah. Let's pray and ask God to protect our city, protect these walls. Hey, and let's put a guard with a sword right there in the front of it. But, but Nehemiah, I mean, God's going to protect us, right? And we're going to put a guard with a sword right there. Right? So that's living it out in confidence. It's trusting God and, and acting in wisdom with our lives. Eric, you guys can come on back up. Living with confidence, church, that God keeps his promises means that no matter what your circumstances are, you know God is good. God is working all things together for good for those he's called and who love him according to his purpose. And you can bank on that because he has not spared his son for us. He sent us his son. That's whom we worship this morning. If you want to know the, the point of Acts 27, these verses here that we read. All right, we're pulling thematic elements. This is topical. The, the point of all this is that we worship the same God, the same God Paul worships, and his promises are just as sure for us. His promises are just as sure for us. The hope, the hope here is not that you can be a hero. Right? The hope's not that you can be a hero like Paul. Paul's not putting himself forward as a hero in these verses. The hope is that you know the hero that Paul knew. Paul, Paul knows the one who rules the waves that this boat is on. And who can just hush them with one word. Paul, Paul knows the hero. He knows that there are Millions of things in this life that he cannot control. And that no matter how crazy our circumstances in life may seem, no matter how shipwrecked things appear, how lost at sea you feel, how painful life has become, listen, know this, everything God has promised you will turn out exactly as you have been told. Exactly as you have been told. And while we wait for him to work all that out, what do we do? We run the race marked out for us. We live with Christian influence in a world that desperately needs Christ. Right? We fight the fight of faith. It's a fight, isn't it? We know the outcome is secure, don't we? We heard those words this morning, heard that from the sermon last Sunday. And so we walk in a manner, we walk in a manner worthy of, of our calling, and I'm preaching to myself, to all of us this morning. We need help from God to do that. We need help to live in a way that reflects the gospel to the world around you.
regardless of our lives' circumstances. I'll have you guys stand up here. We're going to respond in a song. We began this morning this driving question. What's it look like? What's it look like to live in a way that reflects the gospel regardless of life's circumstances? Here in this text, we find our answer. Be consecrated to God, compassionate towards others, courageous for the gospel's advance, and confident that God keeps his promises. One day, church, one day Christ will return and every eye will be on him. Every knee will be bowed. Every tongue will profess that Jesus is who he says he is. One day these promises are all going to come true and we will be with him. Until that day, we have a race to run, don't we? We We have a charge from God as God's people to run into darkness with this light and to let it shine that others may see the hope that we have been given. We need God's help with that. We need God's help to strengthen us for that task. We're about to sing a song called, O Church, Arise. And um, Eric's going to lead us in that song and So listen to these lyrics and ask God to help us and to strengthen us. Let me pray for us and we'll respond. Lord, we are so aware of our weaknesses and our need for you, Lord. As we read your word and as we see the life you call us to live in light of our salvation, in light of the mercy you've shown us, we need your help, God. So please, by your spirit, I pray you'd come and you'd strengthen us. Lord, as we walk into our lives, Lord, may we... May we, by your strength, bring influence, bring gospel influence, Lord. Would you help us to do this? Would you equip us as a church, Lord, to be that city on a hill more and more and more as the days increase, God? Would we increase in our passion for you, our love for you, our consecration to you, Lord, our courage for the gospel's advance, our compassion. Lord, would you help us to increase in all these ways in our confidence that you keep your promises to your people. That is good news for us this morning. We thank you for that. We pray you would help us now as we respond to you in song. You help us as we go out these doors. We go be salt and light in the world. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.